Showtime Sports presents Showtime Boxing with Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney. Hello and welcome to another episode of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. With my co-host Eric Raskin, I am Kieran Mulvaney. Uh, you know what, Eric? Uh, we are truly privileged people. I am privileged to be living in a bucolic corner of Vermont. Uh, you're privileged to have a wonderful family and happy belated anniversary, by the way. Yeah, thank you, sir. Um, we are privileged also to be paid to watch and write about and podcast on boxing. And that is what we are going to do. The world is a scary place right now, or at least certain parts of it are. And we do not want to ignore any of that. Um, and indeed, we actually have an interview coming up on this podcast in which we spend some of our time directly taking on some of the issues that are forefront right now. Uh, but we do recognize we also need to be able to turn to other things for at least part of the time. And so for much of the next 40 minutes to an hour or so, we are here to take your minds and frankly, ours off of current events for a bit. Yeah, yeah, we, we, we need to do that. Our, our, our philosophy here is that uh, when the pandemic has been pushed off of page one by even darker news, uh, it, it's it's time to pivot and uh, spend at least a decent chunk of your podcast uh, talking about the most trivial shit you can possibly <laughs> talk about. And fortunately, nobody can do trivial as well as we can. So, <laughs> right. Um, so uh, let's get to it. Uh, I'm proving once again that we don't need much in the way of actual boxing in order to put together a boxing podcast. We have a pretty loaded show for you this week. Uh, there is some news to cover regarding the return of live fights. Um, there are also a pair of classic fights to discuss. Uh, as on Friday, Showtime will be replaying a pair of bouts that many fans have fond memories of. Uh, Adrian Bronner's upset first defeat at the hands of Marcus Maidana and the magnificent Anthony Joshua, Vladimir Klitschko heavyweight title fight at Wembley Stadium. So we will look back on those with a strong emphasis on Joshua Klitschko, since I was lucky enough to attend that one and never get tired of reminding people of the fact <laughs> that I was attending that one. Uh, on top of that, uh, we're really excited to catch up with a Showtime colleague who is now a fellow podcaster, Brian Custer. He welcomes his first boxing guest, Errol Spence Jr., to his podcast, The Last Stand, with Brian Custer this week. So we will talk to Brian about that. And we will get his thoughts on a few boxing topics and indeed on some of the issues that are roiling the world at large right now. Um, but first, Eric, uh, before we get into the gutsy warriors who trade punches for a living, let's talk about the true heroes. Those who sit on their couches and push buttons on their remote controls. Uh, so since last we spoke, what have you been watching? A few things. Uh, the Arnold binge with my son has continued. Uh, we, we went for lighter fare this week and watched Twins. Which, uh, it's a hilarious concept. Arnold Schwarzenegger and Danny DeVito are twins. That's, you, you can't go wrong with that. Except then the plot is pretty lame and the concept isn't all that well executed. I will say, Arnold has good comedy chops. He, 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 he really, he really nails a, a lot of that stuff. Uh, but it's not much of a movie. Um, onto TV. The Parks and Rec binge continues. We Excellent. got through one of the first truly classic episodes, Ron and Tammy. We got through that. Ah, one. yes. yes. <laughs> uh, Ron Swanson is gaining ground on Andy Dwyer in the My Son's Favorite Character <laughs> race. The, the biggest laugh so far was not from the Ron and Tammy episode, but from the one where Ron has a hernia and can't move and tr <laughs> tries to throw a hamburger into his own mouth. That, that one got the rewind and rewatch uh, that moment treatment. <laughs> um, and now for the most interesting thing that I watched, have you heard of this new Hulu series, Normal People? I have not, sir. Okay. It's kind of 
this year's Fleabag in that the critics and the streaming TV snobs are, are all gushing about it at once, and yet 99% of the population probably hasn't heard of it. Um, it's 12 episodes, about 25 minutes per on average. And my wife and I binged the whole thing in a week. Uh, Actually, she binged it in like four days, Uh, left me in the dust one night when I fell asleep and she kept going. Uh, But uh, but I finished it a couple days later. It's about these two Irish kids uh, falling in love, breaking up, getting back together, etc., following them over the course of a few years from the end of high school through college. It's not very plot heavy. Uh, It's a lot of softcore porn. Uh, which is something my wife has gravitated toward during the pandemic. <laughs> uh, you can infer, well, it has been fifteen years, <laughs> right? <laughs> infer infer whatever you want about uh, about my failings as a husband, but uh, um, she she there's that, and then she binged another show called Outlander, which uh, I wasn't watching, but every time I looked up at the TV screen, people were going at it. Um, but uh, so anyway, with normal people, not a ton of plot, just a character development and brooding young people thinking kind of show. I was slow to warm to it after a few episodes. In fact, I was close to quitting. You know, it was very artfully made. I could appreciate that, but it just felt like it wasn't for me. But then as I got a little deeper into it, uh, as it went along, I enjoyed it more. By the end, I'd say I'd give it an A-. Very good show. If you're cool with a slow pace and with the frustration of watching two star-crossed lovers who really suck at communicating, uh, then uh, it's it's a pretty good show. Um, how about you? What have you been watching to uh, take your mind off everything happening outside your walls? Uh, so you mentioned um, you know, Parks and Rec, and, and I've actually started watching a show that, like Parks and Rec, when I binged that, I'm marginally embarrassed to say that I hadn't sat down and watched before, and that's another classic, uh, and that's 30 Rock. Um, and, and I think you and I talked about this a little offline last right. week. And, and forgive me if I'm overly paraphrasing or misrepresenting you, but one point you made as I started to get into it is that you know 30 Rock was a somewhat transformative comedy, and that whereas the pace of comedies was generally picking up anyway, as with the pace of life and pace of movies and TV anyway, <laughs> right. that 30 Rock sort of took it up under another notch. Like you could, you barely just got over like the one, the one wisecrack, and then along came another one, and then along came another one. It was um, it, that it's just constantly sort of witty comments that you could easily miss i think um and it's really evident i think especially after you brought that up and and that's not a bad thing even though you know i'm a fan of of shows you know like cheers that would would sort of drop the occasional joke in a normal sort of relationship situation (laughs) uh the fact that this is tina fey written and so every single one of those jokes seems to land Mm -hmm. and is witty and funny uh uh, definitely stands out i i'm thoroughly enjoying it i wish that i'd seen it when it first aired so that i was surprised by the realization that alec baldwin has great comic chops <laughs> right. um for example which i think was kind of a revelation at the time i don't think he was known for that um, and now of course we all know that he is um i'm particularly enjoying i think out of all the things that i'm enjoying the most is seeing rachel dratch pop up as just about every conceivable <laughs> character that's like my favorite thing so far about the whole thing but i am actually really enjoying it and um yeah it's 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 witty it's it's well told and uh, I'm, I'm also kind of 
pleased to see that the Tracy Morgan character very swiftly became less of a caricature than he looked like he was in danger of being in the first couple of episodes. Um, and I, uh, there's been a couple of Jason Sudeikis cameos now, and I feel confident in predicting that if you've got Jason Sudeikis doing a couple of cameos, he's going to be playing a bigger role pretty soon. So, <laughs> Well, I won't, I won't uh, spoil anything on that front, but I will say this show, you, lots of truly big-time actors, like A- A-list type stars, pop up in cameos and repeat roles that you wouldn't necessarily expect from them. A lot of people going against type as the as the show goes along. And uh, and definitely yeah, I did I did mention the pace. It is a show that could never have worked with a laugh track. The laugh track would have oh, gotten in the way of everything because <laughs> yeah. the the way they move it's just from one joke right into the next. Uh, and the other thing that I've been watching, uh, you mentioned the show on, on Hulu. Uh, so I've watched now two episodes so far of Space Force on Netflix, which is the latest Greg Daniels project. Right. Um, I'm not entirely swayed by that one yet. Um, it feels to me a little bit, obviously it's only two episodes, and, and Greg Daniels is notorious for having so-so first seasons that he then tools and turns into amazing shows. Right. Um at the moment, it feels to me like it's a little bit stuck between trying to be a sitcom or a very dark satire, and it's got little bits of both, and as a consequence, it isn't quite either. I think it would be better, partly because that's the kind of thing that I like, uh, leaning into the latter, the really dark satire. It could go full Doctor Strange love, and I think it would be brilliant. Um, some of the jokes, um, you know, about an idiot president who wanted a space force, governs by tweets and is in bed with Re- Russia, are a little bit too easy, <laughs> frankly. <laughs> um, but there is some darkly subversive potential there. Um, whichever direction it ends up going in, Steve Carell, who is the main character, certainly has the chops to pull it off. And you, we talked about, you know, people who pop up on 30 Rock. Great supporting cast here, too. Lisa Kudrow. Um, ben Schwartz, Jane Lynch, Dan Bacadal, Diedrich Bader, Patrick Warburton, and in like the main co-starring role, John Malkovich, of all people, who, mm. uh, of course, threatens to steal the show with every scene that he's in. Um, and it was very nice, if melancholy, to see a couple of sightings of Fred Willard. Um, ah, yeah. So I'm going to stick with this one. Uh, it could be interesting. I think it's one of those that might not quite figure out exactly where it is until subsequent seasons interesting uh uh keen keen to keep an eye on it okay i I read a review of it by the one television critic i am often aligned with alan sepinwall and he basically said what you said that like hey the office took a season to figure it out maybe this will show show we'll figure it out but boy was he disappointed in this first season so i don't know i i may wait and until down the road if i hear that the show did figure it out then i'll catch up yeah yeah, indeed. Yeah, it's definitely, it's not, I'm not going to say it's a must watch yet. That's for right. sure. Okay. All right. Uh, let's switch gears and talk some boxing. Uh, regular listeners, or indeed one time listeners, uh, will be aware that the show starts strong every week. Nice opening music, nice classy voice providing the voiceover introduction before it descends into two knucklehead spouting nonsense. Um, well, this week we have a chance to treat you to a little bit more of that early promise that each episode offers as we welcome the man whose voice provides that introduction, the man who sits in the host position on Showtime Championship Boxing and Showtime Boxing Special Edition cards. He now has his very own podcast called The Last Stand with Brian Custer. We are very happy to have joining us now the one and only Brian Custer. Brian, welcome to the Showtime Boxing Podcast. 
Kieran, I appreciate it, my brother. I don't know if I'm worthy of that kind of introduction. <laughs> it's, it's all right. It's all right. Compared to the rest of this show, you absolutely are. Believe me. <laughs> um, look, we will, of course, talk about boxing and podcasting and all that business with you. Look, first, uh, we've been asking all of our guests over the last several weeks how they've been doing since our world got turned upside down a couple months ago. Uh, a week ago, we would have just just been asking you about COVID-19, but there's so much more going on in the world right now. Um, how are you and your family doing uh, physically, mentally, emotionally between isolation and plague and a country on fire? You know, uh, thank you uh, for the question. Uh, I think health-wise, we're doing great. Uh, certainly, like everyone else, we've been quarantined um, since, you know, early March. And uh, I've got a couple of high schoolers, and then I have a 10-year-old, all boys. Uh, so, you know, they've been doing the online schooling. I've been teaching them. But, you know, I'm, I'm just like everyone else, you know, want this country to come together. Uh, certainly disappointed and heartbroken what happened in Minneapolis uh, with George Floyd. And I think it's just important that, you know, people realize I've had that discussion with my boys. You know, I have a 17 year old, a 15 year old and 10 year old about when you go outside, how you conduct yourself. And when we go on for runs, we, we usually run around the neighborhood. Uh, we work out in the driveway, but uh, they always, I uh, got on me because when we would run, I would tell them, hey, let's stick together. Don't fall back. And they don't, couldn't comprehend why I was so adamant about that. And then all of a sudden, when they see a George Floyd get killed like that, you know, their questions to me, dad, was, look, he did everything right. And yet they still killed him. So, you know, how, how are we supposed to act? So it is really heartened uh, and broken my heart as a black father. It's like, how do I protect my young boys? When I've told them they need to be respectable, uh, respect uh, police officers and things of that nature. But yet when they see that, you know, their questions are, even if I am respectable, they're still going to kill me. Hmm. And uh, so I just want this this country to stay together. I think uh, the country and people of different races have seen the pain uh, that we have gone through for years and years and understand that pain. And I think once we all come together, I think... Uh, this country would be a lot better off. You know, I, I think a lot of it comes from leadership from the top. And when you don't get that kind of leadership from the top, who's trying to bring racial harmony, this is some of the stuff that you'll see. And I think that's the reason why we're experiencing what we're experiencing now. So I'm not a parent. Eric is. And I'm always impressed by parents, um, frankly. And it feels to me like it's an enormous amount to try to put across to three young men um anyway then you've also got a situation where the world is in shutdown because of, of, of this disease and then you're looking at what is happening in cities now across the country how do you do that in a way that impresses onto them what is happening without you don't want them to go out in the world terrified right, right? so yeah. i mean that's got to be a very difficult balancing act it is it's, it's, it is it's a balancing act and i'll tell you karen and eric it's that you know, for me, and, and I'm, I'm sure I'm probably speaking for a lot of black fathers, is, you know, you've always, even when they were young, I mean, I'm talking like nine, I had that talk, you know, eight, we had that talk with them about, you know, uh, being respectable to people, being respectable to law enforcement. And yet 
they see that this, and they even see, they saw the video. They're like, look, he, he wasn't resisting. He wasn't this. So, you know, that, how are we supposed to act? And, you know, sometimes you don't have the answer for it. And yet I want them to still have respect for law enforcement and still try to impress upon them. Not all of them are bad. And yet uh, also on the other hand, believe in the humanity and the goodness in all people. And that uh, they believe that no matter if you're uh, Asian, if you're white, uh, if you're Hispanic, that you're a good person. And so they start to question that too, because they also then are going to ask, they've been asking me questions about, well, what about all white people? Are all white people good? Do they understand? And, and so we've had real good and hard questions about race, about law enforcement. And, you know, you got to impress upon them, listen, you know, you have to judge someone by his character, uh, not by the color of his skin. And you have to impress upon them about that. And I truly, truly believe that some of the issues and a lot of the issues we have now is because parents uh, of, of those people who are causing those problems didn't impress upon them to love someone or to judge someone on their character as opposed to their color of their skin. And thus the reason why we're having those problems now yeah. is some of the discussions that I've had with my boys. And I, I, I believe that it's getting through uh, to them to not just judge someone by their, the, the color of their skin, but look at their, the content of their character. And, you know, and I can only hope and pray that as they get older and they have uh, children and I have grandchildren that they do the same with theirs. Yeah, that's very well said. And it's, you know, something that, that you said in there at the beginning of that is that you, when you talk to them, you say, you know, you don't have all the answers. I right. think that's, it, it's, you know, as a parent, we don't have all the answers. The, what the thing we have to do is have the conversations, open up the questions, make sure that while to an extent shielding young kids from some of the scariest, most horrible things, at least, and, and that's the fine line Kieran was talking about is, is how much do you protect them from it and how much do you open them up to it, but just at least having those conversations and making sure that they're aware that in, in my case, I have white kids and they won't experience some of the things that, right. that your kids have to worry about, uh, but that they can empathize and, and know what's going on out there. And I think, I, yeah, as, as parents to at least have that talk with your kids and make sure they know uh, what's going on and right from wrong, simple as that. And, and live it. You know, that's the, the most important thing you can do is live it because they're going to take a beat from how you act mm -hmm. and, and whether you believe it or not, they're watching you. And they're watching how you respond. So I can tell them something, but more importantly, they're going to look at my actions and see how I treat uh, other people of other races and law enforcement. And if they, they see that I'm um, walking the walk as well, they're going to do the same. Absolutely. All right. Well, in addition to uh, being busy as a parent during this time, uh, another thing that, that you've done to keep busy is start hosting a podcast, uh, yeah. which you probably decided to do because you saw Raskin and Mulvaney doing it and you figured, well, that must be easy. Uh, I'll give it a <laughs> shot. Um, you, you've had a strong mix of guests so far. Uh, yeah. My former quarterback, Donovan McNabb, uh, yeah. rapper, actor, Ice Cube and baseball coach, Dusty Baker. It's clear from that list that The Last Stand is fairly wide open in terms of the subject matter you can go into. What went into deciding the direction you wanted to take with the podcast and, and just how are you enjoying doing it so far? 
Yeah, you know, look, listen, I wish you would have told me that it's a lot of work. That's number one. Because <laughs> uh, then I probably would have thought twice about doing it. You know, it's really something that um, I've wanted to do for a really long time. But, you know, as you know, from calling fights, uh, college football, basketball, uh, doing the NBA, uh, doing some NFL game, I'm on the road, it seemed like, every week. And I never really had the time or energy to put into it. And so once the pandemic hit, and especially the, um, the mandate that we had to stay at home, it was like, well, this finally gives me the opportunity uh, to do it. So I teamed up with a company called Let's Do Something Productions. And, you know, I, 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 they gave me the edict. They said, you can, for, you can come up with the format. Uh, we'll help you produce it. And for me, I wanted to have a platform where I could get some of the biggest names, whether it's celebrities and entertainment or sports. And we have an unfiltered straight talk about their career, how they became a champion, maybe how they overcame some obstacles to become as successful as they are. Because I not only wanted to entertain people, but I wanted them to listen and come away with something like, wow, okay, I saw how this, this person did that. I can do it as well. And, you know, we've always been constrained by the time limits of television, well, mm-hmm. podcasts, you know, we can go 40, uh, 50, even an hour if we want. And a lot of times we've done that with some of the guests. And so I wanted a wide range uh, of people. And, and you're right. We've had uh, NFL quarterback for and Donovan McNabb. Matter of fact, we're getting ready uh, to do the Carolina Panthers head coach, Matt Rule. Hmm. Uh, we had Bud Crawford. Uh, he's going to be coming on. You'll be having that one. Uh, in a couple of weeks and uh, Charlemagne the God, Rosie Perez. So we just, we wanted a wide range of people to get on and talk about their careers, how they became successful. And, you know, hopefully people really enjoy it. Charlemagne one's going to be interesting. He's, yes. uh, he's, he's in the news lately. Yes. Um, uh, you mentioned uh, Bud Crawford. Uh, one of the guests that you've got, I think coming up next perhaps is Errol Spence Jr. Yes. Um, You've already recorded that, I think. And, and you mm-hmm. shared a quote on social media that said, uh, Errol said, I don't want to leave 147 without fighting Terrence Crawford. Um, that's the fight we all want to see, of course. Having talked to Errol, do you believe him on that? And do you expect we'll get that fight? And, and sort of a broader question is, how did Errol seem to you? We're all quite keen to see if he's going to be any kind of a different person after that terrible car accident. Yeah, you know, I, I'll, I'll tell you what, man, it was probably one of my most enjoyable episodes. Uh, we spoke for almost an hour and um, he's doing really well. And I will tell you this, you know, the ep- we, we drop new episodes every Tuesday. Uh, all they got to do is go to uh, on YouTube, go to Last Stand podcast with Brian Custer on YouTube. Obviously, they can listen to it on Apple uh, podcast, Google, Podbean, Spotify, all of those if they want to download it. But Arrow was you know, he was really good. He was really revealing. He talked a lot about, you know, at the very beginning, Kieran and Eric was that, uh, that he's been working out every day, uh, that he is back uh, training. Uh, he's kept his weight down. So he's ready to fight, he said. Um, and he he'd also talked a lot about that he's seen uh, a lot of stuff on social media that people have doubted him and that they believe that he won't be the same fighter when he comes back than he was before the accident. And he says, that's driving him. Um, He talked a lot about how the accident has changed him as a person. There's a lot of things that he does differently, he says now, uh, that he wasn't doing uh, before the accident. And he he calls the accident, he says, a big wake-up call 
uh, for him, but he was very adamant. And you'll see in the episode, I said, you know, realistically, Errol, don't you need a tune-up before you jump back into that deep water that you were in before? And he laughed at me and he said, no. And his quote was, I'm a shark. <laughs> and he says, sharks swim in deep water. Don't put me in a pool. You put me in my natural habitat. And that's the deep water. And he says, hey, I've already told Al, and obviously he was talking about Al Heyman, that I don't want to tune up. When I come back, uh, I want the top fighters. That's how I'm going to get my feet wet. And I followed it up with, okay, then realistically, you tell me your next three fights. And he said, oh, my next three fights, realistically, Danny Garcia, Manny Pacquiao, and Terrence Crawford. And he ended it by saying, I will not leave 147 until I fight Terrence Crawford. Wow. Yeah, I don't know how realistic that sequence is. I don't think Manny Pacquiao is going anywhere near Errol Spence. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's what he says. He, he <laughs> yep. talked to Al about. That's what he wants as his, his three fights. And he said, and you know, you'll find out in the, uh, the episode, he said after those three fights, he's leaving 147. Uh, th that's when he's going up to 154. Okay. And Brian will just have to have Manny on the podcast. And That's ask right. Right, exactly. I've been working on it. I've been working. They said, they said the problem is, is that he's in Manila, and I guess his manager, Sean Gibbons, is in Vegas, and they don't have anyone that can get him to a computer to do right. the interview. So they say that's the problem. They need somebody in Manila to get him on a computer so we could do the interview. <laughs> um, so in, in another universe, uh, Errol Spence's return to boxing uh, would have been a major story against any opponent, uh, just the fact that he would be coming back. But now we're in this weird space where every boxer is going to be coming back from a layoff and, and trying to pick up where they left off. So in, in a sense, he blends in with the crowd a bit, although not if he fights Danny Garcia. That fight right. would, would stand out. Yeah. Um, but what's your sense of what boxing is going to look like in the second half of 2020? Will we see a lot of big fights? Will we see any of the huge pay-per-view mega fights? And should we, whatever happens, should we brace for some boxers looking kind of rusty, maybe missing weight, things like that? Yeah, you know, that's a, it's a really good question. It's a question, matter of fact, it's a question that I not only asked Errol, but it was a question that I asked Bud Crawford, and we'll drop the episode with Bud Crawford in a couple of weeks. But they both had the same uh, attitude. It, Bud Crawford said he's been training, and he hasn't fought since December. Uh, he says he's been training basically every other day. And, um, uh, but you know, it's really interesting is that they have two different approaches to it. Errol said he thinks that fighters are going to be coming back a lot hungrier because they haven't fought. And some of them, as he points out, don't make the money that he makes and they're a lot hungrier. And so they, they want to get paid. And so that means they got to stay on top of their game and they're going to just come back. There won't be a lot of feeling out rounds. Guys are just going to come and get right after it. So he thinks the action will be. Uh, a lot more uh, combative, uh, a lot more all-action type fights because guys have been itching uh, to come back. Now, there are other guys like Terrence Crawford who had a different approach because I asked him about coming back and I said, listen, now, when you get back to boxing, there may be some small crowds, no crowds at all. Does that concern you? But Crawford said he's not fighting in front of, either no crowd or small crowds. Mm -hmm. He comes back, he wants the arena full. Mm -hmm. And he said, even if that means he doesn't fight until next year. 
Mm-hmm. He will wait it out until crowds are let back in there because in his opinion, small crowds, no crowds means lesser paydays. Right. And that's mm-hmm. not something he wants. Errol's a different approach. He said, absolutely, I'll come back if there's no crowds. But he also realizes that he's going to have a, it's going to be a pay-per-view fight. So he's still going to get paid a nice paycheck as opposed to regular, a regular fighter who will come back and have to take uh, a lesser type of paycheck. I will say for one, one of the good things that probably that will come out of this is that the economics of boxing will probably get back to normal. I think we got out of whack mm-hmm. with some of the money that some, uh, some of these fighters were making for these fights. And a lot of that was because different things like DAZN and all these other people came into the marketplace, even Fox, and were playing some of these fights an exorbitant amount of money and making some of these fights pay-per-view when they shouldn't have been pay-per-view yeah. fights. And now I think maybe we can get back to the economics of boxing where it is regular and an even playing field for everyone. Now that sort of goes into, you know, I was going to do this sort of follow-up question, which is how you, if you were to look into a crystal ball, how you see boxing and perhaps sports more generally, because you work in a lot of different sports from our side of the ledger looking, you know, from the broadcasting side, from the business side, um, you know, do you, you know, we all do a lot of travel. We're all often cheek by jowl, you know, in arenas and media rooms and all of that kind of stuff. Um, Do you foresee any of that changing in the long term? Or do you think by 2022, assuming we've been able to get this under control, our memories are short and we're back to the way things were in 2019? I mean, if you were to make a guess with the kind of conversations that you've been having in the broadcasting business and the, and the business side of things, how do you, how do you imagine things are going to look? I will say that I think if, even from a boxing standpoint, I think they're going to tighten the purse strings now on some of these fights. I don't think that some of these entities and broadcasting entities will be paying the kind of purses uh, or paying for the kind of fights that they were paying for in the past. I mean, I just thought that it had gotten out of whack. Uh, you know, again, a lot of that is because Fox came into the marketplace to zone and you can see to zone the massive layoffs all of a sudden they spent, they went through so much money. It was almost like kind of like what happened with the PBC when they first got started, they were just playing big time, big time money. And then they realized, you know what, this is not sustainable. And I think what we'll see now is good fights, really, really good fights. And I think uh, we'll see more of those kind of big fights. We had gotten away. I think one of the things that made Showtime really good three years ago uh, was that not only was the co-main a phenomenal fight that could have been a main event, but the main event was good. The co-main was good. And then even the, the first fight, you were like, wow, that first fight was really good. I'm satisfied with just watching the intro fight. And I think we'll probably get back to that because the price for those kind of events won't be as much as they were in the past. And and so I think that boxing will be alive and well, but more importantly, it'll be better for the fans because I think the entire fight card will be better. And, you know, I think economically, I think a lot of these, uh, broadcast entities won't be charging a lot for these pay-per-view fights anymore. Uh, they won't charge a hundred bucks, won't charge 80 bucks. I'll start to, hey, I think we need to come down on some of these prices. So listen, I, the good thing is for the fans and that's what it's all about to make sure the fight fans see the fights that they want. And number two, they get their money's worth. 
and it's an economical uh, expense for them and that they get the most bang for their buck. Uh, so, so Kieran mentioned that you cover several sports. I know you do football and, and basketball in addition to boxing. Just as a fan, not as a professional broadcaster thinking in terms of your work, but just as a fan, how badly have you been missing sports since March? And is there one in particular you found yourself hungering for? Absolutely. Uh, terribly. Um, <laughs> I think even financially, terribly. Right. You know, the, the, the misnomer is I think people see us just because we're on – you know, television, they think, oh, well, that, that person's wealthy. Uh, he's doing well. I'm just like anybody else. You know, I haven't worked since March. I have not worked. And I got three boys. And so, you know, this, this was tough. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it has been tough. Um, so I'm just like anyone else. I would love, I would absolutely love sports to be coming back. Hey, usually around this time, I'm doing big three, which is Ice Cube's professional basketball league. They canceled oh, right. So not, I wasn't even doing that. Um, so absolutely been fiending, fiending uh, for sports to come back. Uh, obviously, health and safety of the players, uh, the fans is of uh, the utmost importance. And it probably, I mean, the, the sport that uh, I always say this, I miss the sport in the season that I'm in. So for me right now, football, I'm fiending football because usually right now I'm getting ready to gear up to do college football, get some NFL games towards the end of the season. Um, so for me, that's kind of what boxing. I love it because I usually, I get it every month. So I really don't have to miss it so much because every month I'm usually doing a fight. Um, so you know that to me, I, I love the sport that I'm in, right. That's in season. And right now, it would for me, would generally be football that I'm gearing up for. So obviously, that's what I've been missing the most. Okay. So you and I met when we were tasked with co-hosting a couple of events for that yeah. Mayweather-Pacquiao extravaganza five years ago now. Um, Eric and I spent some time recently on some of the podcasts uh, looking back at various Cinco de Mayo fight weeks. And as big as many of them were, nothing came close to that big sloppy mess. Um, look, obviously, you've done a great many huge events, boxing and other sports, but where does that rank for you? Uh, and what memories stand out from Mayweather Pacquiao five years later? Well, it was great. I mean, listen, Karen couldn't have been a better person to work with. Uh, we had a lot of fun. It was, listen, we were doing press conferences and those guys were late. And <laughs> usually they would say, hey, you know, we, you need to tap dance or vamp for, you know, five minutes, 10 minutes. We were doing it for like 90 minutes, <laughs> waiting for these guys to arrive. So it was a lot of work. Uh, I think. The, to me, the scene of it is something that I will remember most because when you looked up around there, it was thousands upon thousands of media members, and it wasn't just real, regular our boxing colleagues. I mean, even the people from Entertainment Tonight yeah. to all kinds of sports to the Today Show, Good Morning, all of these people. And I'm like, wow, I cannot believe all of these people are here for a boxing match. Uh, to me, just that scene and even the night of the fight, you know, seeing celebrities upon celebrities everywhere, uh, that's when you you kind of, I realized how massive of uh, this thing was. And, and the only thing I, I think that kind of matched it, and obviously it matched it a little bit uh, dollar-wise, was when we did Mayweather-McGregor. I mean, even that one, it was like, that was just unreal because, you know, not only doing that fight, but I had to host the press conference, and it was like one day we were in L.A., the next day we were in Brooklyn. The next day we were in London. The next day we were in Toronto. And those two got 
in the gutter, it seemed like, with <laughs> yeah. every press conference and was late and later at, at every press conference. And the scene was just unreal. So to me, those two fights were right there at the top only because of the, the, the scene uh, that it brought. You know, obviously for Mayweather-McGregor, it was UFC and boxing. And, and then, of course, the nation was just gripped by both of those fights. So that, that's what I remember most. The only time I've actually ever been really worried about about you doing an event with Deontay Wilder, Dominic Brazil. When I, <laughs> I thought, man, Stephen, you better be paying Brian a lot of money to get in the middle of that. <laughs> that hate was real too. Yeah. And I just remember, here's the crazy thing. I'll tell you guys, it's a true story. They closed the fight off, the, the press conference for that fight, the, the initial press conference uh, announcing the fight off to the media because they knew those two hated each other that much. So I get there, Brian, we feel like you're going to, you're a great host for this. You can control both of those guys. And I said, okay, no problem. And they said, you know, they, we did it at the Barclays center, did it in a little room over there at the Barclays center, right off the rotunda area. They didn't have its security. So they had, they shut it off to the media and they didn't have any security there. I had to play security. <laughs> <laughs> and these guys are right. And if you remember, Deontay's beard was right here. It was like scratching up against my cheek. And and, and I could feel Brazil arm, his chest was like right, right bumping up against me. And I'm the only thing I could think of was, man, I had just gotten this custom suit. And <laughs> suit. I'm throwing hands at both of y'all guys, but that hate was real and I had to literally push these two guys away from each other because they really wanted to get at it and then afterwards I'm looking like who was the smart guy that didn't have security up here for these <laughs> I got one guy who's six seven another guy who's <laughs> trying to rip each other and I'm the one who's six one and a half got to play security between these two who uh -huh. got both have devastating right hands <laughs> <laughs> yeah you're you're a big guy under normal circumstances right. but not not compared to those no, two no. and, and I like to think I'm a big man right <laughs> compared to those two well you're very lucky at least that it was just uh Deontay's beard against your cheek and not that he didn't unleash a bomb squad directly into your ear that, that might have been the end of you you're right about that all right so last thing here uh, you you sit behind a desk with Mauro Ronaldo, Al Bernstein, Pauli Malignaggi and occasionally Steve Farhood I'm gonna put you on the spot here you have to be stuck in a quarantine house with one of those guys for a few months who are you picking <laughs> wow uh I, I can tell you this i love moral moral is man but he's like a beautiful mind moral's going 24 seconds he's like hey but you yeah that would drive me crazy okay. so, people don't realize that that is moro like moral. off camera that is moro yeah that is moro uh i love him dearly yeah but that i i I would be, man, I'd be bouncing <laughs> off the walls with Moral because he's just going 24-7. Uh, Paulie, he's out there. So, yeah, I, I yeah. I probably Al because he's, he, Al is sweet. Uh, now he's going to sing his broadcast. I was going to say, he can sing you a song. He's going to sing, <laughs> going to sing for you every now and then. I love that. So, yeah, I would probably, if I had to go into quarantine, uh -huh. I'm going in with Al Bernstein. That's there my guy. Go. 
I think that you you made you made the certainly the safe choice. I, yeah, I, I yeah, think exactly. <laughs> you know, look, me and me and Paulie are too different politically. So yeah, we 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 would just we'd end up boxing each other. So yeah, I'm going with Al. <laughs> yeah. With, with with Al, you're avoiding anything combustible. Yeah, exactly. Good, I'm going with Al. Okay. All right. <laughs> hey, Brian. Look, thanks so much. Hey, as a reminder to everybody, the last stand with Brian Custer available. Let me make sure I get them all. YouTube, yep. Google Podcasts, Spotify, iTunes. What am I missing? I need everyone to go to YouTube, subscribe. That's the important thing. Subscribe to the Last Damn Podcast there, you go. there uh, on YouTube because I, I'm only hoping that it is half as successful as what you two guys have done. <laughs> if I can get be just half as successful as this podcast, man, I'd be a happy man. So really though, would you? <laughs> <laughs> Brian, look, thank you so much. You're always a gentleman. It's great to have you on. Thanks for classing up the joint. And man, I'm really looking forward to the time where we get to see each other in person again. I, hey, I, I appreciate you, Gary. You know I love you, man. Big hug next time I see you, Eric. Thank you. I appreciate the time. Thanks, right. Brian. Thanks, Brian. All right, our thanks again to Brian Custer. Definitely looking forward to listening to his interview with Errol Spence. And as he mentioned, Spence is looking to return in the fall against Danny Garcia and make a night boxing fans won't forget. And uh, this Friday on Showtime at 10 p.m., we get to relive a pair of fights no boxing fan could possibly forget. The latter of those is perhaps the most schadenfreude-inducing fight of the millennium, <laughs> December 14th, 2013, when Marcos Maidana handed Adrian Broner his first defeat in what was seen at the time as a major upset. But before we get to experience Broner's first defeat all over again, Showtime brings us Vladimir Klitschko's final defeat in an epic battle at Wembley Stadium on April 29th, 2017, the 41-year-old Klitschko in a crossroads fight against then-undefeated 27-year-old British sensation Anthony Joshua. Both men were knocked down hard. Both men were on the verge of exhaustion and of being stopped. Ultimately, it was Joshua who prevailed in the 11th round in what almost everyone would agree was the best major heavyweight fight of the 21st century so far. And Kieran, you were there. Uh, this was a rare and contentious uh, Showtime HBO crossover. Showtime had the live broadcast. HBO had the primetime replay. I'll be basically acting as the interviewer for this segment, uh, you the interviewee. I might inject a few opinions, but I, I mostly I just want to get your memories. So first, the atmosphere. Talk to me about being among 90,000 at Wembley, those electric ring walks, the whole thing. Yeah, so first of all, it was a really huge deal for me to be at Wembley. It was the first time I'd ever been to Wembley Stadium, which is mm. England's national stadium. And it's maybe a bit of a difficult concept for U.S. fans to grasp the notion of a national stadium but you know no club has its no no team has its permanent base at Wembley it's where the national England soccer team plays it's where you know uh cup finals are played where special events are hosted it's got a long and storied history yeah I, I'd never been there the, the Wembley that stands there now that's not the stadium that was there when I was allowed or my dad was allowed as it's been completely rebuilt but even so, you know to be able to walk out onto the field one of the first things that I really remember was almost spontaneously ended up walking out onto the field while everything was still being set up and and that in and of itself before anybody was a couple of days before anybody else was even there just to be able to stand there out on on the field was, was pretty cool for me and, and our hotel was situated right next to the stadium so i enjoyed taking like a short walk there each morning and saying hi to the statue of bobby moore who was the captain when england won the world cup in 1966 and just generally you know drinking it in but 
nothing actually prepared me for the scale of the event itself. I mean, we were talking in advance about, hey, it's going to be amazing. There's going to be 90,000 people. And you could talk about, wow, that's going to be amazing. 90,000 people watching a box, watching a boxing fight. And nothing actually prepares you for 90,000 people being in an arena <laughs> right. watching a fight. Um, and not only was it 90,000 people, it was 90,000 mostly British boxing fans, which takes it up an entirely different notch. You know, and I think in terms of raw atmosphere, you know, I... The Pacquiao Morales and Pacquiao Marquez crowds were great. But I think every fight I've been to with a predominantly British crowd, uh, the ones that, that have been top in terms of atmosphere, you know, Ricky Hatton against Floyd Mayweather, Hatton against Pacquiao, Gennady Golovkin against Kel Brook. But the scale of this, the significance of the event, and then added into that, the fact that it was a terrific fight. It just made for like this all round spectacle. Uh, Joshua, like Gennady Golovkin, um, walks out to Seven Nation Army, and they've got 90,000 people singing along to that. Uh, flash, you know, holding up flashlights on their camera, on their cell phones, and, and and videoing everything. Fireworks going off. Um, I recall you asking me in our post-fight podcast where this ranked in terms of ringside experiences, and I and my answer, I sort of deliberately dialed it back a bit, like, oh yeah, it's kind of way up there. And I think what was happening was. I was trying not to get overly caught up in recency bias. Right. Um, but five years on, I can comfortably say that in terms of overall ringside atmosphere, you know, the loudness of the crowd, the size of the crowd, and added to that the quality of the fight itself, it was the biggest and best ringside atmosphere I've experienced. Mm, okay. Wow. Um, and, and you mentioned uh, that the, the, the fans in the UK are, are, are a little different, bring a little uh, different feel to things. The mainstream media in the UK also tends to treat boxing a little differently than our mainstream media does. You know, it's, it's not relegated to the niche sport bin quite as much over there. It's certainly this fight was enormous in Britain and, and really all across Europe. Do you have specific recollections of the media coverage and was it bigger in that regard than any fight you've attended other than maybe Maypac? So the first sign, and I've forgotten about this until recently, was the immigration officer at Heathrow Airport asking me about the fight. Okay. <laughs> and, and who was going to win? Uh, you know, with the standard, what are you doing here? Oh, yeah, I'm here for the fight. Oh, yeah, you think AJ's going to blah, blah, blah. And so that's the realization that, oh, okay, everybody's quite aware of this. Um, and so, as, as I've mentioned before, in the United Kingdom, they have this novelty called national newspapers, and there are several of them. Um, and they all have actual dedicated boxing correspondence. It's it's a remarkable thing. Great, great <laughs> idea. Every, people should try it over here. Right. Um, so, yes, there's an enormous amount of coverage. And and I think that you know, boxing has never quite slid into the also-ran status that it has here, and particularly after the um, the London Olympics – um, where AJ, you know, won a gold medal, it and where so many boxers had done so well, and even really since oddly Harrison won a gold medal, and Amir Khan came along, mm -hmm. and so people have been much more, I think, in in tune and paying attention to boxing over there generally, and it was, yeah, it was everywhere. Uh, you know, it got to the point where, and we both know what what this is like. You know, we journalists have basically run out of things to write in the build-up to the fight and we're doing things like here's the profile of the last man to defeat aj and the amateurs who is now you know a waiter in turkmenistan or something and um there was a profile of michael buffer actually there were a couple of profiles of michael buffer that's when you're like all right we have run out of things to, <laughs> right. to write about here um and joshua's already a big star over there 
you know, crossover celebrity in the way that very few boxers, perhaps except Canelo in, in certain markets, are over here. I mean, Floyd Mayweather obviously is famous here. A lot, a lot of people know Floyd Mayweather, but nobody's paying him to endorse their products. Um, Joshua's beaming down from billboards all over the place in London. Um, you know, the, you mentioned the Maypack comparison. And that's an interesting one. I don't quite know how to compare the two. I think, you know, the difference, I guess, is that, you know, Maypack, I think, was as much famous almost for the f- however many years of marination that right. it had as, as much for the mashup. And and I kn- while everybody who was even remotely aware of anything sporting was aware of it, I, I don't know whether even those who didn't care about sport knew about it because I, you know, really wasn't so much exposed to, to that you know and like during fight week for make pack we were in that bubble we spent almost the entire time in the mgm grand which is of course entirely geared towards the fight and even when we got out of the mgm grand we were still on the las vegas strip so it was hard to get out of that that bubble but because i have relatives in london i was at least able to get away from the hotel away from the stadium out into the city and when you're on you know mass transit when you're on the, the subway and you're hearing people several people everywhere talking about the fight um when even my niece and her fiance who know really just couldn't give a flying monkey butt about boxing just don't care at all they knew about it and wanted to ask me about it then yeah i think that definitely gave a sense of how large it was and the other thing that came to mind is um the final pre-fight presser was on the the sky campus which is huge you know sky news sky tv sky sports all on one enormous campus there in london and it was held like a foyer of one of the buildings and it was packed during lunchtime and so it was it felt like half the staff of sky tv were packed in hanging from the rafters to pay attention to the press conference and they were on balconies or filling stairways and and so that and so you know you realize that if even everybody at sky is treating it as a huge deal it's a huge deal and and there was even a public workout i think on a wednesday possibly the tuesday and the production values and the media attendance at this public workout was of a level you would expect for a weigh-in for a Vegas fight, a large Vegas Vegas fight, or or even an actual small fight card, it was it was it was kind of surprising. So yeah, it was it was everywhere. Okay, well I I can speak uh, to to the Maypack side of, of that a bit uh, in that uh, some of my friends who were outside that bubble and who never. Uh, watch boxing, talk to me about boxing, whatever, other than like, you know, occasionally if Mike Tyson is seen hitting the pads, they'll reach out to me. But otherwise, uh, boxing doesn't exist in their world. That during Maypack, I was getting a lot of those messages. Mm. Uh, oh my God, you're at this thing? And I'm gonna, I've never ordered a pay-per-view before, but I'm, I'm mm. inviting a bunch of people over. We're going to get this one. So it, I think it did have that kind of uh, crossover. But uh, as you said, you were, you were inside the bubble. But enough about uh, Maypack and a... a somewhat disappointing fight. Let's talk about a fight that did not disappoint at all. Um, As you did, I I listened back this week to that post-fight podcast that we recorded a half half hour or so after the fight ended. Uh, You had an excellent line about Joshua getting knocked down in round six after he had floored Vladimir in the fifth, but then quickly got gassed. You said... You would not believe that 90,000 people could be that quiet. Um, Is that your most enduring memory of the fight, that stretch when it seemed the local hero was going to unravel and get stopped? Oh, man, that was was something. The whole, like, progression of noises in the crowd um, 
obviously after when Joshua, Joshua put Klitschko down and had him in trouble, I mean, you can just imagine, of course, uh, had the stadium had a roof, it would have blown off. Um, <laughs> right. And then maybe it did and, have a roof when it started. And you didn't notice. And, and, I just then, didn't and then it blew exactly. up. Yeah, very possible. And, and then, I mean, you know what it's like when you're, you're in an arena and a crowd, it takes a crowd sometimes a little bit of a while to realize when their guy is in a bit of trouble. Mm-hmm. And you, that might, you can, Sometimes if you're down, like, making notes, right, and you, and you miss a, a, a blow, you know who landed the blow if, if the crowd is very heavily pro one fighter because it's very different the noise that it makes when their guy lands a punch and the other guy lands a punch. And it's just that kind of, like, loud, slightly worried murmur. And it went from that, it went from that loud, like, yay, you know, Joshua's going to win to, oh, wait, hey, what, what's... <laughs> What? Why, why is <laughs> right. he finishing? Why, why is he? Why is he stopped? To um, you know, and then Klitschko coming back so strongly that I gave Joshua just a ten nine round when he knocked him down, and I think one of the ringside judges did too. Uh, to yes, that basic silence when Joshua went down in round six, and you know, thank heavens for all the people in the crowd that having got Joshua just where he wanted him, Vladimir decided that was the time to stop throwing punches. For a of rounds. <laughs> right. Um, but it's funny because even though like the great, you know, majority of the crowd went through that, that progression to that extraordinary silence, I was sitting uh, with Tom Costello, my producer just off the main ringside media area uh, directly in front, two seats behind us were two members of team Klitschko, including, I've forgotten her name, but this woman who was sort of like Vladimir's minder and PR person and so on and so forth. And she was this very dynamic and imposing German lady who was very audibly unhappy when Vladimir went down. And then as 90,000 people went very quiet, she like <laughs> leaps up and is very loud and is like running back and forth in the aisle past this, punching the air. So it looked like Vladimir was, was coming back. It was, yeah, that was definitely an unusual moment to put it mildly. Okay. <laughs> um, well, as I noted on that post-fight podcast, one of my favorite moments came after the fight. Uh, the moment where the London crowd just, swelled in in loud cheers for Vladimir, knowing that they'd watched an aging great give it his all and and go down swinging. And let's face it, Vladimir Klitschko was not usually an entertaining fighter, so the crowd uh, appreciated the way he fought even more with with that in mind. Um, We talked at the time about how it seemed this would be a great learning experience for AJ, that it's a fight that's going to make him better, we said. Looking back three years later... Having seen him plateau a bit, lose in shocking fashion to Andy Ruiz, then adjust and, and box and avenge that loss, do you think this fight made Anthony Joshua better? I'm not sure it did in hindsight, looking back on it. I mean, it feels almost as if that fight has been the high watermark of his career so far, hasn't it? I mean, looking back at what he did afterwards, he dispatched Carlos Takam in, okay, decent performance. Uh, won a clear, if unspectacular, points victory over Joseph Parker. He did beat up Alexander Povetkin, which is a pretty good win, actually, mm-hmm. to be fair. But then, like you said, along came Andy Ruiz. And if it was clear that there were some warning signs there for Joshua in the way that Klitschko threatened to turn that around, it appears that he hadn't heeded them by the time that he fought you know, Ruiz, the the rematch against Ruiz suggested he's fully capable of learning lessons and adopting strategies and, and, and changing strategies. 
although Ruiz was so out of shape and so awful and embarrassing in that rematch, we still don't know how AJ would cope in a rematch against somebody who had really gotten into shape and come to fight. Um, but since that time, it does feel like he slipped in the pecking order, doesn't it? Like yeah. on that night, at the end of that, he stood as the clear number one heavyweight in the world. Whether you thought he was the legitimate heavyweight champion depended on whether you believed that Tyson Fury was legitimately done, which he appeared at that stage to quite possibly be. Um, and for all that Fury chanted from the from the sidelines you know and mocked joshua said that he dispatched klitschko in much easier fashion which was true at that stage all tyson fury was was a very fat carnival barker on the sidelines who right. looked as if he wasn't coming back right um and then since then you know there were a period there was a period where maybe deontay wilder was threatening to you know, usurp Joshua's number one, not, not because he had superior skills, but because he was starting to score the more spectacular wins. Um, and because that thunderous right hand combined with Joshua's, you know, newly questionable chin, you know, suggested the whole styles make fights maxim wouldn't work out well for Joshua if they fought. But now, of course, since then, Fury has come back and fully reclaimed his throne and is clearly the dominant heavyweight champion, is clearly the heavyweight champion. And I guess we're still sort of waiting a little bit to see exactly where, where Joshua fits in the scheme of things. So, yeah, that, that feels as if to this point, that has been his his high water mark. Um, I mean, whatever happens, he will always have that night at Wembley. But I, uh, yeah, I, I don't know that it feels that he's kicked on since then. Yeah, no, I'm I'm on the same page as you. I don't see any evidence that that fight made him better. You know, time will tell if the Ruiz loss made him better. Um, yeah, it, it made him make some adjustments and and box better for one night, but the lasting impact there remains to be seen. But I, I think the Klitschko fight, other than displaying AJ's heart and and convincing him if he had any doubts going in that he could overcome adversity and win I don't think he's done anything since then to make me say he became a better fighter after that experience. So I'm with you that it might be that he peaked that night. Um, three three years out, uh, we haven't really seen anything better from him, I don't mm. think. Um, anyway, before we change uh, subjects, any other stories or, or memories of note from that fight week worth sharing? So I always chuckle about this. So then... It was still huge news the next day. It was all over the BBC news bulletins and so on. And um, I was in the the American Airlines lounge at Heathrow the next day. And at one point, I stood up to fetch something or get something or go to the bathroom or something. And on my way back, uh, there's Evander Holyfield sitting there eating some granola or some such. And we catch each other's eyes, and I look at him and I walk up to him. And I said, "Man." That was something else, because I'm still buzzing, right? I'm, I'm really happy to talk about the fight, especially with Evander Holyfield, who doesn't want to, like, just very briefly dissect, dissect a great heavyweight fight with him. And, uh, and I'm like, oh, man, I was talking with some people and trying to figure out exactly, possibly by that I meant you, I think, probably because mm. we talked about it on the podcast. Right. You know, we're trying to figure out exactly where last night fit in the whole scheme of things. And man, I, I, th- I think that's probably the best heavyweight fight since your first fight with Bo. And he just looks at me with a, Jesus Christ, can a man eat his breakfast in peace, Claire? <laughs> and just goes, yeah, it's a good fight. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, uh, and, I, and I took the hint and went back to my seat. And uh, that's my story. All right, good job, good job taking the hint. And uh, I think yes. that, that, that illustrates why uh, we have a podcast and Evander Holyfield doesn't, probably. <laughs> and, yet, and yet he's been on since, and he was a charming guest. 
No, he's a good guest, but uh, I don't know that he uh, enjoys talking quite enough to no. uh, to do this for a living. No, but he does. You can see, you know, when a when a former professional fighter fixes you with the "do not mess with me" glare. Yeah. <laughs> Yes. They say it's the punch that's the last thing to go. It's not. It's the glare. <laughs> there you go. Well, good job reading the room uh, by you. <laughs> All right. Uh, let's talk for a moment also about uh, the Maidana Bronner fight. Uh, neither of us was there. Um, so we won't spend nearly as much time on this. Uh, but I will ask you this <laughs> Does this still stand as the happiest night in boxing Twitter history? Um, and how big of an upset was this for people who might forget that it was an upset because Maidana's now you know, in retirement, quite highly regarded. And Bronner has since gone on to lose several more times. So the the first question, it probably is the happiest night in boxing <laughs> Twitter history. It has to be, right? What what could top this? Um, it's a weird thing with Broner. I, I occasionally find myself looking for reasons to empathize with him or, or understand him. Like, I just watched this ESPN special, uh, a mini documentary of sorts on Roy Halladay uh, that aired the other day, uh, you know, the former pitcher for the Blue Jays and, and Phillies. In the documentary, they delved into this extreme anxiety had, he had that I didn't really know about, that he got addicted to painkillers because he threw out his back pitching and didn't want to quit, etc. And it was just a reminder that we don't really know these people. Uh, yeah. we, we see them when they perform. Uh, you and I can get to know these boxers to an extent by interviewing them, but we're still seeing their public persona only. We don't really know what's going on in their lives. So I wonder sometimes, is there a good reason Adrian Broner behaves the way he does? I don't know what problems he's facing, what he's overcome, and so forth. But all we have is the public persona to go on, and based on the public persona... A lot of people can't stand this guy, and it's understandable. And so, yeah, without a doubt, boxing Twitter has never been happier. The the memes, you know, Broner pitched halfway through the ropes, Madonna dry humping him. Yeah. People <laughs> ate it all up with a spoon and asked for seconds and thirds. And and that ties in the excitement and enjoyment of it all ties in with how big an upset it was. It was very big. It was named upset of the year by the Ring magazine. Broner, I looked it up. He was anywhere between a four to one and six to one favorite. So, you know, it wasn't Ruiz over Joshua or Douglas over Tyson, but this win was pretty much expected to be a formality for Broner. Uh, he was the next big thing. He was 24 years old, entering his prime, and almost everyone expected him to be high on pound for pound list very soon, maybe a future number one. Maidana had suffered the only lopsided defeat of his career against Devin Alexander the previous year. He famously struggled with Eric Morales the year before that. There was every reason to think Broner would do to him something similar to what Devin Alexander did, that he, he was just going to be too quick and slick for Maidana. But it wasn't the case. Maidana found this other gear, which he then carried into the Mayweather fights as well. Um, and Broner, I think it's safe to say, had already peaked by then and wasn't quite as good as his flashy abilities made us think he could be. So, yeah, it doesn't feel like an upset now in retrospect, yeah. but they rarely do. Um, yep. At the time, this was pretty shocking. But, you know, for boxing Twitter, shocking in a good way. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's funny. It's like so many people at that time wanted to see Bronner lose. And and even after he, he you know had lost a couple he was still yeah people are still paying for me you know paying to see me i'm still earning all this money and he was still you know nasim hamed had this for a while that people 
you know, fans would be divided between those who wanted to see him and those who just wanted to see him lose. There was right. an element of that with Floyd, I think, except that none of the people who wanted to see him lose ever went in with any expectation that they would. Right. Um, and then that's just gotten to a point where that's not even fun anymore because yeah. we now know that when Bronner steps it up against a top-level opponent, he's probably going to lose. Um or slightly escape with a draw, as, as he arguably did against Jesse Vargas. And right. I don't know, you know, I spent, I did get the opportunity to just shadow him you know, with that fight that he had against Vicente Escobedo, where he, where he, you know, weighed in too heavy. And Ned Mulholland and I were doing a profile on him. And my sense then with Adrian Bronner is he's not a, he's not a bright man. Hmm. Um, and I'm not sure that he's ever, I don't think his emotional intelligence is high. He's a child basically, I think. And I think that he's constantly sort of trying to get attention and trying to get some kind of reaction. And that just, when that works out negatively, that just feeds back on itself a little bit. And so he'll try something else to try and make it. And it just, I, I think that's what's going on. I, I, I don't know that, I don't think he's a malevolent person. I, I, that's, that's, the, that's the sense that I get from the guy. Um, but, uh, but as for Maidana, you know, of course, the thing with Maidana like Bronner was the second highly hyped prospect whose career he, he upended, right? Because right. Bronner's never been the same since. And nor has Victor Ortiz. And right. and both those guys, for different reasons, Bronner and Ortiz were both prospects that a lot of boxing fans and you know the Ortiz defeat was a bit before boxing Twitter, but you know boxing Twitter has taken up the mantle of mocking Victor Ortiz. <laughs> right. Since then. That that they kind of just really wanted to lose, and that just has added. It's not just that Maidana like ended prospects' careers; he ended those prospects' careers effectively. Right. And I think that's what's helped make him such a cult hero <laughs> among boxing fans. Right. And I think you know the the third guy in that uh, holy trinity of uh, people that boxing Twitter loves to hate would be Amir Khan and Maidana. I think I, th I think Twitter sort of views that as a win for Maidana, even though it wasn't. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But he came out, he was down in the first round, looked right. all over, and then, yeah, yeah. yeah. I remember, because I was at that fight, and I remember um, Amir and his team coming into the post-fight press conference, and Freddie Roach just did the big blow out his cheeks, exhale, kind of, <laughs> oh my God, I can't believe we got away with that as right. he was walking past. But yeah, exactly. All right, enough of looking back. In the past, let's bring it home with some news. Uh, you asked me last week, Eric, if I expected the Nevada State Athletic Commission to rubber stamp top ranks request to promote boxing cards without audiences in Las Vegas. And indeed, the commission unanimously passed all motions. Uh, boxing is indeed set to return to the United States with ESPN televising on June 9th. And Shakur Stevenson meets Felix Caraballo and Michaela Mayer takes on Helen Joseph at the MGM Grand. Uh, there's another card two days later, plus assorted other televised fights announced for June and July. None of the major fights, but it's boxing. Um, Eric, uh, I understand you actually violated our agreement and did research <laughs> and listened in to the Nevada Commission's meeting. Uh, do you have any insights from listening in that you have to pass along and of the fights reported so far? for June or July, anything excite you? Yeah, I listened into that call, so the rest of uh, you and all the listeners didn't have to. Uh, the meeting was as boring as you'd expect. Uh, Bob Bennett said a few things about how they've been working hand-in-hand -hand with Top Rank, but it was a very quick call. They passed five motions related to getting boxing and MMA going again. And the five motions were through in less than 10 minutes, no objections at all. Uh, so, yeah, pretty uneventful. As for the fights coming up, 
Uh, I wouldn't use the word excite uh, regarding any of them. That, that might be too strong a word. But so, some of them aren't bad, uh, and and some of them don't feature 100-to-1 favorites. Um, Jose Zapata versus Ivan Baranchik on July 7th is solid. Um, you know, the others, the matchups don't look so hot, but... I'm happy to watch Jamel Herring fight and Jesse Magdaleno. You know, we're we're easing back in. I think, yeah. uh, you know, temper those expectations for now and you'll be fine. But, you know, it, it's nice to see fights being added to the schedule instead of crossed off. That's a nice change. I, did, I have already seen um, a couple of people on Twitter complaining about the fights, the quality of the fights. I'm like, come on! Right. Like, <laughs> look at the situation here. Let's, let's, let's give people a chance to, you know... Get in shape and whatnot first, yeah. and yeah, and and yeah. Anyway, whatever. So this is this is the again. other thing boxing Twitter does. <laughs> oh, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Uh, however, for 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 all of these uh, fights, whether uh, people on Twitter do do or do not approve of them, um, they they are being added to the schedule. But I guess we don't know one hundred percent that they're happening until the fighters are in the ring. At least based on what happened in the Dominican Republic this weekend, a six-fight card was scheduled for Saturday in Santo Domingo without an audience. Everyone had reportedly been tested. Organizers said they were following all protocols, but Dominican authorities disagreed. Sports Minister Daniel Diaz said the card was suspended because protocols were not in line with what the Dominican government had required. We have no additional information here, so it's impossible to know if this was some kind of political issue or a real matter of health concern. We'll see if we learn any more about that in the days ahead. Indeed. Um, we have some sad news to report. Uh, former worldweight champion Curtis Coates, who held the title from 1966 to 69, died last week at the age of 82. Uh, Coates was the living embodiment of the art of hitting without being hit, uh, was a masterful counterpuncher. He retired with a ring record of 62, 14, and 4 with 30 KOs. He was inducted into the International Boxing Hall of Fame in 2003, and he became a successful trainer of, among others, heavyweight contender Kirk Johnson. Uh, Eric, I believe you interviewed Curtis a couple of times, yes? Yeah, two or three times, I think. Uh, and in addition to training Kirk Johnson, he also trained Ike Bayabuchi. And then that's the, the interview that, that stands out is when I talked to him for an article about Ike uh, very soon after Ike's arrest in 1999 i was actually writing a preview of the michael grant ibayabuchi fight which was all but signed and then the fight got scrapped and mm. i had to tear up my preview and instead uh, i wrote a feature about uh, ike's implosion and uh so coax was ike's trainer I, I got a hold of him and he was really hurting and he made no effort uh. to hide it uh one one quote that stood out uh Curtis told me, sometimes I can't sleep thinking about how we were right at the threshold, how he was all set to become champion, and he keeps killing everything we've worked for. Uh, just just brutal. And so I I tried to track Curtis down again a few years ago for my podcast about Abayabuchi, and I got a hold of his son, Vince, uh, but never got an interview with Curtis. And reading between the lines, I suspected that Curtis wasn't well, and maybe that's why Vince uh -huh. didn't facilitate the interview with his dad. I can't say for sure. Uh, that's just kind of my best guess. Uh, but in any case, as you said, a Hall of Fame fighter, a successful trainer as well, a sad loss for boxing. Indeed. Um, so let's try and end on a lighter note. Uh, there has been much speculation of late, way too much speculation for our tastes, about Mike Tyson returning to the boxing ring. Well, he returned to 
a ring last <laughs> week, a different sort of ring. He got into a shouting and shoving match with pro wrestler Chris Jericho on an AEW broadcast, in which he demonstrated just what good shape he is in by almost managing to tear his shirt off. Um, <laughs> Eric, we were aligned in terms of enjoying quick videos of Tyson hitting the pads and hating the idea of Tyson actually fighting somebody. So uh, where do you fall when it comes to Iron Mike, AEW superstar? <laughs> I'll take Wash Tyson versus Wash Jericho in fake fighting over <laughs> Wash Tyson versus Wash Holyfield in real fighting. Yep. That's that's for sure. But uh, yeah, as you as you suggested there, uh, Tyson might already be considered 0-1 in his AEW <laughs> You run uh, when uh, he, he lost his comeback bout against his own T-shirt. Uh, r- ripping your shirt off, I guess, isn't as easy as Hulk Hogan makes it look. Maybe because the Hulkster shirts were made out of basically paper mache. But uh, yeah, my Tyson's muscles under the shirt. Wow, they, they yeah, look seriously. great, especially for 53. But uh, watching him try to rip off the shirt was kind of sad. Um, also, I gotta say. That was a lot of wrestlers spitting in each other's faces. Um, I assume they're getting tested, but boy, this is not the time to have 20-person battle royals uh, with all of these guys getting right up in each other's grills, sharing microphones in this case. Come on, AEW. Can't you just have your matches over Zoom? Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm only half kidding. I would tune in for the two uh, creative wrestlers who decide to have a match on Zoom and one starts throwing fake punches in the direction of his computer camera (laughs) and the guy on the other end starts bumping. I want to see that. Awesome. I love it. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) All right, that will do it for another episode of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. Our great thanks again to Brian Custer for joining us. That was fabulous to talk to him. Um, We will be back next week. And guess what? We will have actual fights to preview. Uh, Minor ESPN fights that might not warrant more than a minute or two of analysis under normal circumstances, but each will get a (laughs) 45-minute block. (laughs) We we have been starved. It's boxing. Um, We will also dive into the new Showtime documentary film Ringside and speak with the two main stars of that doc. Uh, That's going to be something to really look forward to, uh, that's for sure. Um, And we will be talking again about that one ex-fighter and wannabe shirt ripper who nobody ever (laughs) seems to get tired of since Showtime will be replaying not one, not two, not three, not four, but uh, 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 five of his big knockout wins. We will talk about late career Mike Tyson, which is... The most fun career Mike Tyson to talk about. Um, until then, thanks for listening. And right now, even more than ever, be safe, be kind, and be well.